Welcome to Mrs. Nappy's Notes, Native Son, Book 2, pages 241 to 260. He left the room and went down to a window on the first floor and looked out. The street was quiet and no cars were running. The tracks were buried under the snow. No doubt the blizzard had tied up traffic all over the city. He saw a little girl pick her way through the snow and stop at a corner newsstand. A man hurried out of a drugstore and sold the girl a paper. Could he snatch a paper while the man was inside? The snow was so soft and deep he might get caught trying to get away. Could he find an empty building in which to hide after he snatched the paper? Yes, that was just the thing. He looked carefully up and down the street. No one was in sight. He went through the door, and the wind was like a branding iron on his face. The sun came out, suddenly, so strong and full that it made him dodge as from a blow. A million bits of sparkle pained his eyes. He went to the newsstand and saw a tall, black headline. Hunt, black, in girl's death. Yes, they had the story. He walked on and looked for a place to hide after he had snatched the paper. At the corner of an alley, he saw an empty building with a gaping window on the first floor. Yes, this was a good place. He mapped out a careful plan of action. He did not want it said that he had done all the things he had and then got caught stealing a three-cent newspaper. He went to the drugstore and looked inside at the man leaning against a wall, smoking. Yes, like this. He reached out and grabbed a paper, and in the act of grabbing it, he turned and looked at the man who was looking at him, a cigarette slanting whitely across his black chin. Even before he moved from his tracks, he ran. He felt his legs turn, start, then slip in the snow. God damn! The white world tilted at a sharp angle, and the icy wind shot past his face. He fell flat, and the crumbs of snow ate coldly at his fingers. He got up on one knee, and then on both. When he was on his feet, he turned toward the drugstore, still clutching the paper, amazed and angry with himself for having been so clumsy. The drugstore door opened. He ran. Hey! As he ducked down the alley, he saw the man standing in the snow looking at him, and he knew the man would not follow. Hey, you! He scrambled to the window, pitched the paper in before him, caught hold and heaved himself upward to the ledge and then inside. He landed on his feet and stood peering through the window into an alley. All was white and quiet. He picked up the paper and walked down the hallway to the steps and up to the third floor, using the flashlight and hearing his footsteps echo faintly in the empty building. He stopped, clutched his pocket in panic as his mouth flew open. Yes, he had it. He thought that he had dropped the gun when he had fallen in the snow, but it was still there. He sat on the top of the steps and opened the paper, but for quite a while he did not read. He listened to the creaking of the building caused by the wind sweeping over the city. Yes, he was alone. He looked down and read, Reporters find Dalton girl's bones in furnace. Black chauffeur disappears. 5,000 police surround black belt. Authorities hint sex crime. Communist leader proves alibi. Girl's mother in collapse. He paused and reread the line. Authorities hint sex crime. Those words excluded him utterly from the world. To hint that he committed a sex crime was to pronounce the death sentence. It meant a wiping out of his life before he was even captured. It meant death before death came. For the white men who read those words would at once kill him in their hearts. 
The Mary Dalton kidnapping case was dramatically cracked wide open when a group of local newspaper reporters accidentally discovered several bones later positively established as those of the missing heiress in the furnace of the Dalton home late today. Search of the black man's home, 3721 Indiana Avenue in the heart of the South Side, failed to reveal his whereabouts. Police expressed belief that Miss Dalton met her death at the hands of the black man, perhaps in a sex crime, and that the white girl's body was burned to destroy the evidence. Bigger looked up. His right hand twitched. He wanted a gun in that hand. He got his gun from his pocket and held it. He read again. Immediately, a cordon of 5,000 police, augmented by more than 3,000 volunteers, was thrown about the black belt. Chief of Police Glenman said this morning that he believed that the black man was still in the city since all roads leading in and out of Chicago were blocked by a record-breaking snowfall. Indignation rose to white heat last night as the news of the black man's rape and murder of the missing heiress spread through the city. Police reported that many windows in the black section were smashed. Every streetcar, bus, L train, auto leaving the south side being stopped and searched. Police and vigilantes armed with rifles, tear gas, flashlights, photos of the killer began at 18th Street this morning and are searching every black home under a blanket warrant from the mayor. They are making a careful search of the all abandoned buildings, which are said to be hideouts for black criminals. Maintaining that they feared for the lives of their children, a delegation of white parents called upon superintendent of schools, Horace Minton, and begged that schools be closed until the black rapist and murderer was captured. Reports were current that several black men were beaten in various north and west side neighborhoods. In the Hyde Park and Englewood districts, men organized vigilante groups and sent word to Chief of Police Glenman offering aid. Glenman said this morning that the aid of such groups would be accepted. He stated that a woefully undermanned police force together with recurring waves of black crime had made such a procedure necessary. Several hundred black men resembling Bigger Thomas were rounded up from south side hotspots. They are being held for investigation. In a radio broadcast last night, Mayor Ditz warned of possible mob violence and extorted the public to maintain order. Every effort is being made to apprehend this fiend, he said. It was reported that several hundred black employees throughout the city had been dismissed from jobs. As a well-known banker's wife phoned this paper that she had dismissed her black cook for fear that she might poison the children. Bigger's eyes were wide and his lips were parted. He scanned the print quickly, handwriting experts busy. Airloan's fingerprints not found in Dalton home. Radical still in custody. And then a sentence that leaped at Bigger like a blow. Police are not yet satisfied with the account Airloan has given of himself and are of the conviction that he may be linked to the black man as an accomplice. They feel that the plan of the murder and kidnapping was too elaborate to be the work of a black mind. At that moment, he wanted to walk out into the street and up to a policeman and say, No, Jan didn't help me. He didn't have a damn thing to do with it. I, I did it. His lips twisted into a smile that was half leer, half defiance. Holding the paper in taut fingers, he read phrases. 
black man ordered to clean out ashes, reluctant to respond, dreading discovery, smoke-filled basement, tragedy of communism and racial mixture, possibility that kidnap note was work of reds. Bigger looked up. The building was quiet, save for the continual creaking caused by the wind. He could not stay there. There was no telling when they were coming into this neighborhood. He could not leave Chicago. All roads were blocked, and all trains and buses and autos were being stopped and searched. It would have been much better if he had tried to leave town at once. He should have gone to some other place, perhaps Gary, Indiana, or Evanston. He looked at the paper and saw a black-and-white map of the south side, around the borders of which was a shaded portion an inch deep. Under the map ran a line of small print. Shaded portions show an area covered by police and vigilantes in search for black rapist and murderer. White portion shows areas yet to be searched. He was trapped. He would have to get out of this building. But where could he go? Empty buildings would serve only as long as he stayed within the white portion of the map, and the white portion was shrinking rapidly. He remembered that the paper had been printed last night. That meant the white portion was now much smaller than was shown here. He closed his eyes, calculating. He was at 53rd Street, and the hunt had started last night at 18th Street. They had gone from 18th to 28th Street last night, and they would have gone from 28th to 38th Street since then. And by midnight tonight, they would be at 48th Street, or right here. He wondered about the empty flats. The paper had not meant... He had not mentioned about them. Suppose he saw, found a small, empty kitchenette flat in the building where many people lived. That was by far the safest thing. He went to the end of the hall and flashed a light in the dirty ceiling and saw a wooden stairway leading to the roof. He climbed and pulled himself up a narrow passage at the end of which was a door. He kicked at the door several times, each kick making it give slightly until he saw snow, sunshine, and an oblong strip of sky. The wind came stinging into his face, and he remembered how weak and cold he was. How long could he keep going this way? He squeezed through and stood in the snow in the snow on the roof. Before him was a maze of white, sun-drenched rooftops. He crouched behind a chimney and looked down into the street. At the corner, he saw the newsstand from which he had stolen the paper. The black man who shouted at him was standing by it. Two black men stopped at the newsstand and bought a paper, and then walked into the doorway. One of them leaned eagerly over the other's shoulder. Their lips moved, and they pointed their back, black fingers at the paper and shook their heads as they talked. Two more men joined them, and soon there was a small knot of them standing in the doorway, talking and pointing at the paper. They broke up abruptly and went away. Yes, they were talking about him. Maybe all of the black men and women were talking about him this morning. Maybe they were hating him for having brought this attack upon them. He had crouched so long in the snow that when he tried to move, he found that his legs had lost all feeling. A fear that he was freezing seized him. He kicked out his legs to restore circulation of his blood, then crawled to the other side of the roof. Directly below him, one floor away, through a window without shades, he saw a room in which two small iron beds with sheets dirty and crumpled. In one bed sat three naked black children looking across the room to the other bed, on which lay a man and a woman, both naked and black in the sunlight. There were quick, jerky movements on the bed where the man and woman lay, and the three children were watching. It was familiar. He had seen things like that when he was a little boy sleeping five in a room. 
Many mornings he had awakened and watched his father and mother. He turned away thinking, five of them, sleeping in one room, and here's a great big empty building with just me in it. He crawled back to the chimney, seeing before his eyes an image of the room of the five people, all of them blackly naked in the strong sunlight, seen through a sweaty pane. The man and woman moving jerkily in a tight embrace, the three children watching. Hunger came to his stomach. An icy hand reached down his throat and clutched his intestines and tied them into a cold, tight knot that ached. The memory of the bottle of milk Bessie had heated for him last night came back so strongly that he could almost taste it. If he had had that bottle of milk now, he would make a fire out of newspaper and hold the bottle over the flame until it was warm. He saw himself take the top off the white bottle, with some of the warm milk spilling over his black fingers, and then lift the bottle to his mouth and tilt his head and drink. His stomach did a slow flip-flop, and he heard it growl. He felt in his hunger a deep sense of duty, as powerful as the urge to breathe, as intimate as the beat of his heart. He felt like dropping to his knees and lifting his face to the sky and saying, I'm hungry. He wanted to pull off his clothes and roll in the snow until something nourishing seeped into his body through the pores of his skin. He wanted to grip something in his hand so hard that it would turn to food. But soon his hunger left. Soon he was taking it a little easier. Soon his mind rose from the desperate call of his body and concerned itself with the danger that lurked about him. He felt something hard at the corner of his lips and touched it with his fingers. It was frozen saliva. He crawled back through the door into the narrow passage and lowered himself down the shallow wooden steps into the hallway. He went to the first floor and stood at the window through which he had first climbed. He had to find an empty apartment in some building where he could get warm. He felt that if he did not get warm soon, he would simply lie down and close his eyes. Then he had an idea. He wondered why he had not thought of it before. He struck a match and lit the newspaper. As it blazed, he held one hand over it for a while, then the other. The heat came to his skin from far off. When the paper had burned so close that he could no longer hold it, he dropped it to the floor and stamped it out with his shoes. At least he could feel his hands now. At least they ached and let him know that they were his. He climbed through the window and walked to the street, turned northward, joining the people passing. No one recognized him. He looked for a building with for rent sign. He walked two blocks and saw none. He knew that the empty flats were scarce in the black belt. Whenever his mother wanted to move, she had to put in requests long months in advance. He remembered that his mother had once made him tramp the streets for a whole two months looking for a place to live. The rental agencies had told him that there were not enough houses for black people to live in and that the city was condemning houses in which black people lived in as being too old and too dangerous for habitation. And he remembered the time when the police had come and driven him and his mother and his brother and sister out of a flat in a building which had collapsed two days after they had moved. And he had heard it said that black people, even though they could not get jobs, paid twice as much rent as whites for the same kind of flats. He walked five more blocks and saw no for rent sign. God damn, would he freeze trying to find a place in which to get warm? How easy it would be for him to hide if he had the whole city in which to move about. 
They keep us bottled up here like wild animals, he thought. He knew that black people could not go outside of the black belt to rent a flat. They had to live on their side of the line. No real... No white real estate man would rent a flat to a black man other than the sections where it had been decided that black people might live. His fist clenched. What was the use of running, anyway? He ought to stop right here in the middle of the sidewalk and shout what this was. It was so wrong that surely all the black people around him would do something about it. So wrong that all the white people would say that he was crazy. He reeled through the streets, his bloodshot eyes looking for a place to hide. He paused at a corner and saw a big black rat leaping over the snow. It shot past him into a doorway where it slid out of sight through a hole. He looked wistfully at that gaping hole through which the rat had darted to safety. He passed a bakery and wanted to go in and buy some rolls with the seven cents he had. But the bakery was empty of customers and he was afraid that the white proprietor would recognize him. He would wait until he came to a black business establishment. But he knew that there were not many of them. Almost all the businesses in the Black Belt were owned by Jews, Italians, and Greeks. Most black businesses were funeral parlors. White undertakers refused to bother with dead black bodies. He came to a chain grocery store. Bread sold here for five cents a loaf. But across the line where white folks lived, it was sold for four. And now, all of all times, he could not cross that line. He stood looking through the plate glass at the people inside. Ought he to go in? He had to. He was starving. They trick us of every breath we draw, he thought. They gouge our eyes out. He opened a door and walked to the counter. The warm air made him dizzy. He caught hold of a counter in front of him and steadied himself. His eyes blurred and there swam before him a vast array of red and blue and green and yellow cans stacked high upon shelves. All about him, he heard the soft voices of men and women. You waited on, sir? A loaf of bread, he whispered. Anything else, sir? Nah. The man's face went away and came again. He heard paper rustling. Cold out, isn't it? Huh? Oh, yes, sir. He laid the nickel on the counter. He saw the blurred loaf being handed to him. Thank you. Call again. He walked on steadily to the door with the loaf under his arm. Oh, Lord, if he could only get into the street. In the doorway, he met people coming in. He stood to one side to let them pass, then went to the cold wind, looking for an empty flat. At any moment, he expected to hear his name shouted, expected to feel his arms being grabbed. He walked five blocks before he saw a two-story flat building with a for-rent sign in the window. Smoke bulged out of the chimneys, and he knew that it was warm inside. He went to the front door and read a little vacancy notice posted on the glass and saw that the flat was a rear one. He went down the alley to the rear steps and mounted to the second floor. He tried a window and it slid up easily. He was in luck. He hoisted himself through it and dropped into a warm room, a kitchen. He was suddenly tense, listening. He heard voices. They seemed to be coming from the room in front of him. Had he made a mistake? No, the kitchen was not furnished. No one, it seemed, lived in here. He tiptoed to the next room and found it empty. But he heard the voices even more clearly now. He saw still another room leading farther. He tiptoed and looked. That room, too, was empty. But the sound of the voices was coming so loud that he could make out the words. An argument was going on in the front flat. He stood with the loaf of bread in his hands, his legs wide apart, listening. Jack, 
You mean to stand there and say you'd give up that guy for the white folks? Damn right I would. Jack, suppose he ain't guilty. Well, what in the hell he run for then? Maybe he thought he was going to blame the murder on him. Listen, Jim, if he wasn't guilty, then he ought to stayed and faced it. If I'd known where that guy was, I'd have turned him up to get these white folks off of me. But Jack, every black guy looks guilty to white folks when somebody's done a crime. Yeah, that's because so many of us act like Bigger Thomas, that's all. When you act like Bigger Thomas, you stir up trouble. But Jack, who's stirring up trouble now? The papers say they've beaten us up all over the city. They don't care what black man they get. We all dogs in their sight. You gotta stand up and fight these folks. And get killed? Hell nah. I got a family. I got a wife and a baby. I ain't starting no fool fight. You can't get no justice protecting men who kill. We's all murderers to them, I tell you. Listen, Jim, I'm a hard-working man. I fixes the streets with a pick and a shovel every day and when I get a chance. But the boss told me he didn't want me taking in them streets with this mob feeling around among the white, white folks. He says I get killed. So he lays me off. You see, that goddamn bigger Thomas made me lose my job. He made the white folks think we all just like him. But Jack, I tell you, they think it already. You's a good man, but that ain't going to keep him from coming to your home, is it? Hell no. We's all black and we just as well act black. Don't you see? Aw, oh, Jim. It's all right to get mad, but you got to look at things straight. That guy made me lose my job. That ain't fair. How's I going to eat? If I'd have known where that black son of a bitch was, I'd call the cops and let him come get him. Well, I wouldn't. I'd die first. Man, you crazy. Don't you want a home and a wife and chillin'? What's fighting going to get you? There's more of them than us. They could kill us all. You got to learn to live and get along with people. When folks hate me, I don't want to get along. But we got to eat. We got to live. I don't care. I'd die first. Oh, hell, you crazy. I don't care what you say. I'd die for the let them scare me into telling on that man, I tell you. I'd die first. He tiptoed back into the kitchen and took out his gun. He would stay here. And if his own people bothered him, he would use it. He turned on the water faucet and put his mouth under the stream and the water exploded into his stomach. He sank to his knees and rolled in agony. Soon the pain ceased and he drank again. Then, slowly, so that the paper would not rustle, he unwrapped the loaf of bread and chewed a piece. It tasted good, like cake, with a sweetish and smooth flavor he had never thought bread could have. As he ate, his hunger returned in full force and he sat on the floor and held a fistful of bread in each hand, his cheeks bulging and his jaws working and his Adam's apple going up and down with each swallow. He could not stop until his mouth became so dry that the bread balled on his tongue. He held it there, savoring the taste. He stretched out on the floor and sighed. He was drowsy, but when he was on the verge of sleep, he jerked abruptly to a dull wakefulness. Finally, he slept, then sat up, half awake, following an unconscious prompting of fear. He groaned, and his hands flayed the air to ward off an invisible danger. Once he got up completely and walked a few steps with outstretched hands, and then lay down in a spot almost ten feet from where he had originally slept. There were two biggers, 
One was determined to get rest and sleep at any cost. The other shrank from images charged with terror. There came a long space of time in which he did not move. He lay on his back, his hands folded upon his chest, his mouth open and eyes open. His chest rose and fell so slowly and gently that it seemed during the intervals when it did not move, he would never breathe again. A wan sun came onto his face, making the black skin shine like dull metal. The sun left in the quiet room filled with deep shadows. As he slept, there stole into his consciousness a disturbing rhythmic throbbing which he tried to fight off to keep from waking up. His mind, protecting him, wove the throb into patterns of innocent images. He thought he was in the Paris grill, listening to the automatic phonograph playing, but that was not satisfying. Next, his mind told him that he was at home in his bed and his mother was singing and shaking the mattress, wanting him to get up. But this image, like the others, failed to quiet him. The throb pulsed on, incessant, and he saw hundreds of black men and women beating drums with their fingers. But that, too, did not answer the question. He tossed restlessly on the floor, then sprang to his feet, his heart pounding, his ears filled with sound of singing and shouting. He went to the window and looked out. In front of him, down a few feet through a window, was a dim-lit church. In it, a crowd of black men and women stood between long rows of wooden benches, singing, clapping hands, and rolling their heads. All oh, them folks go to church every day in the week, he thought. He licked his lips and got another drink of water. How near were the police? What time was it? He looked at his watch and found that it had stopped running. He had forgotten to wind it. The singing from the church vibrated through him, suffusing him with a mood of sensitive sorrow. He tried not to listen, but it seeped into his feelings, whispering of another way of life and death, coaxing him to lie down and sleep and let them come and get him, urging him to believe that all life was a sorrow that had to be accepted. He shook his head, trying to rid himself of the music. How long had he slept? What were the papers saying now? He had two cents left. That would buy times. He picked up what remained of the loaf of bread and... The music sang of surrender, resignation. Steal away, steal away, steal away to Jesus. He stuffed the bread into his pockets. He would eat it sometime later. He made sure that his gun was still intact, hearing, Steal away, steal away home. I ain't got long to stay here. It was dangerous to stay here, but it was also dangerous to go out. The singing filled his ears. It was complete, self-contained, and it mocked his fear and loneliness, his deep yearning for a sense of wholeness. Its fullness contrasted so sharply with his hunger, its richness with his emptiness, that he recoiled from it while answering it. Would it not have been better for him had he lived in the world that the music sang of? It would have been easy to have lived in it, for it was his mother's world. Humble, contrite, believing. It had a center, a core, an axis, a heart which he needed but could never have unless he laid his head upon a pillow of humility and gave up his hope of living in the world. And he would never do that. He heard a streetcar passing in the street. They were running again. A wild thought surged through him. Suppose the police had already searched this neighborhood and overlooked him. 
but a sober, sober judgment told him that that was impossible. He patted his pocket to make sure the gun was there, then climbed through the window. Cold wind smote his face. Must be below zero, he thought. At both ends of the alley, the street lamps glowed through the murky air, refracted into mammoth balls of light. The sky was dark blue and far away. He walked to the end of the alley and turned out onto the sidewalk, joining the passing stream of people. He waited for someone to challenge his right to walk there, but no one did. At the end of the block, he saw a crowd of people, and fear clutched hard at his stomach. What were they doing? He slowed and saw that they were gathered about a newsstand. They were black people, and they were buying papers to read about how the white folks were trying to keep, trying to track him to the earth. He lowered his head and went forward and slipped into the crowd. The people were talking excitedly, cautiously. He held out two cents in his cold fingers. When it was close enough, he saw the front page. His picture was on the center of it. He bent his head lower, hoping that no one would see him closely enough to see that it was he who was pictured there. Times, he said. He tucked the paper under his arm, edged out of the crowd, and walked southern, looking for an empty flat. At the next corner, he saw a for-rent sign in a building, which he knew was cut up into small kitchenette flats. This was what he wanted. He went to the door and read the sign. There was an empty flat on the fourth floor. He walked to the alley and began to mount the outside rear stairs, his feet softly crunching in the snow. He heard a door open. He stopped. He got his gun and waited, kneeling in the snow. "'Who's that?' It was a woman's voice. Then a man's voice sounded. "'What's the matter, Ellen? "'I thought I heard someone come out here on the porch. "'Ah, you're simply nervous. "'You're scared of all this stuff you've been reading in the papers. "'But I'm sure I heard somebody. "'Ah, empty the garbage and shut the door. "'It's cold.' "'Bigger flattened against the building in the dark. "'He saw a woman come out of the door, pause, and look around. "'She went to the far end of the porch "'and dumped something into a garbage pail and went back inside. "'I wouldn't have had to kill them both if she saw me,' he thought. I would have had to kill them both if she saw me, he thought. He tiptoed up to the fourth floor and found two windows, both of them dark. He tried to lift the screen in one of them and found it frozen. Gently, he shook it to and fro until it loosened, and then he lifted it out and laid it on the porch in the snow. Inch by inch, he raised the window, breathing so loud that he thought surely the people must hear him, even in the streets. He climbed into a dark room and struck a match. An electric light was on the other side of the room, and he went to it and pulled on the chain. He put his cap over the bulb so that no light would seep through to the outside, then opened up the paper. Yes, here was a large picture of him. At the top of the picture ran a tall line of black type. 24-hour search fails to unearth rapist. In another column, he saw raid 1,000 black homes. Incipient riot quelled at 47th Halsted. There was another map of the south side. This time, the shaded area had deepened from both north and south, leaving a small square of white in the middle of the oblong black belt. He stood, looking at the tiny square of white as though we were gazing down into a barrel of, of a gun. Here, here, he was there on that map, in that white spot, standing in a room waiting for them, dead set. His eyes stared above the top of the paper. There was nothing left for him but to shoot it out. He examined the map again. 
the police had come from the north as far as the south as 40th Street, and they had come from the south as far as the north as 50th Street. That meant he was somewhere in between. They were minutes away, he read. Today and last night, 8,000 armed men combed cellars, old buildings, and more than 1,000 black homes in the Black Belt in a vain effort to apprehend Bigger Thomas, the 20-year-old black rapist and killer of Mary Dalton, whose bones were found last Saturday night in a furnace. Bigger's eyes went down the page, snatching at what he thought most important. Word spread that the slayer had been captured, but was immediately denied. Before night police and vigilantes will have covered the entire black belt, raiding numerous communist headquarters throughout the city. The arrest of hundreds of Reds failed, however, to uncover any clues. Public warned by mayor against boring from within. Then, a curious sidelight was revealed today when it became known that the apartment building in which the black killer lived is owned and managed by a subfirm of the Dalton Real Estate Company. He lowered the paper. He could read no more. The one fact to remember that was 8,000 men, white men, with guns and gas, were out there in the night looking for him. According to this paper, they were but a few blocks away. Could he get to the roof of the building? If so, maybe he could crouch there until they passed. He thought of burying himself deep in the snow on the roof, but he knew that was impossible. He pulled the chain again and plunged the room in darkness. Using the flashlight, he went to the door and opened it and looked into the hall. It was empty, and a dim light burned at the far end. He put out the flashlight and tiptoed, looking at the ceiling, searching for a trap door leading to the roof. Finally, he saw a pair of wooden steps leading upward. Suddenly, his muscles stiffened as though a wire strung through his body had jerked him. A siren shriek entered the hallway and immediately he heard voices, excited, low, tense. From somewhere down below, a man called, "'They's coming!' There was nothing to do now but go up. He clutched the wooden steps above him and climbed, wanting to get out of sight before anyone came into the hall. He reached the trap door and pushed against it with his head. It opened. He grabbed something solid in the darkness above him and hoisted himself upward, hoping as he did so that it would hold him and not let him go crashing down upon the hall floor." He rested on his knees, his chest heaving. Then he eased the door shut, peering just in time to see a door in the hall opening. That was close. The siren sounded again. It was outside in the street. It seemed to sound a warning that no one could hide from it, that action to escape was futile, that soon the men with guns and gas would come and penetrate where the siren sound had penetrated. He listened. There were throbs of motors. Shouts rose from the streets. There were streams, screams of women and curses of men. He heard footsteps on the stairs. The siren died and began again, on a high shrill note this time. It made him want to clutch at his throat. As long as it sounded, it seemed that he could not breathe. He had to get to the roof. He switched on the flashlight and crawled through the narrow loft until he came to an opening. He put his shoulder to it and heaved. It gave so suddenly and easily that he drew back in fear. He thought that someone had snatched it open from above, and in that same instant of its opening he saw an expanse of gleaming white snow against the dark smudge of night and a stretch of luminous sky. A medley of crashing sounds came, louder than he had thought sounds could be, horns, sirens, screams. 
There was hunger in those sounds as they crashed over the rooftops and chimneys. But under it, low and distinct, he heard voices of fear, curses of men and cries of children. Yes, they were looking for him in every building and on every floor and in every room. They wanted him. His eyes jerked upward as a huge, sharp beam of yellow light shot into the sky. Another came, crossing it like a knife. Then another. Soon the sky was full of them. It circled slowly, hemming in on him, bars of light forming a prison, a wall between him and the rest of the world, bars weaving a shifting wall of light into which he dared not go. He was in the midst of it now. This was what he had been running from ever since that night Mrs. Dalton had come into the room and had charged him with such fear that his hands gripped the pillow with fingers of steel and had cut off the air from Mary's lungs. Below him was a loud, heavy pounding, like a faraway rumble of thunder. He had to get to the roof. He struggled upward, then fell flat in deep snow. His eyes riveted upon a white man across the street upon another roof. Bigger watched the man whirl in the beam of a flashlight. Would the man look in his direction? Could the beam of a flashlight make him visible from where the man was? He watched the man walk around a while and then disappear. Quickly, he rose and shut the trap door. To leave it open would create suspicion. Then he fell flat again, listening. There was the sound of many running feet below him. It seemed that an army was thundering up the stairs. There was nowhere he could run to now. Either they caught him, or they did not. The thundering grew louder, and he knew that the men were nearing the top floor. He lifted his eyes and looked in all directions, watching roofs to the left and right of him. He did not want to be surprised by someone creeping on him from behind. He saw that the roof to his right was not joined to the one upon which he lay. That meant that no one could steal upon him from that direction. The one to his left was joined to the roof on the building upon which he lay, making it one long, icy runway. He lifted his head and looked. There were other roofs joined too. He could run over those roofs over the snow and round those chimneys until he came to a building that dropped to the ground. Then that would be all. Would he jump off and kill himself? He did not know. He had almost a mystic feeling that if he were ever cornered, something in him would prompt him to act the right way. The right way being the way that would enable him to die without shame. He heard a noise close by, looked round just in time to see a white face ahead and then shoulders pull into view upon the roof to the right of him. A man stood up, cut sharply against the background of the roving yellow lights. He watched the man twirl a pencil of light over the snow. Bigger raised his gun and trained it upon the man and waited. If the light reached him, he would shoot. What would he do afterwards? He did not know. But the yellow spot never reached him. He watched the man go down, feet first, shoulders, and head. He was gone. He relaxed a bit. At least the roof to his right was safe now. He waited to hear sounds that would tell him that something climbing through the trap door. The rumbling below him rose in a volume with the passing seconds, but he could not tell if the men were coming closer or receding. He waited and held his gun. Above his head, the sky stretched in cold, dark blue oval, cupping the city like an iron palm covered with silk. The wind blew hard, icing, without ceasing. It seemed to him that he had already frozen, that these pieces could be broken off him, 
as one chips bits from a cake of ice. In order to know that he still had the gun in his hand, he had, look, he had to look at it, for his hand no longer had any feeling. Then he was stiff with fear. They were pounding feet right below him. They were on the top floor now. Ought he to run to the roof to his left? But he had no one search that roof. If he ran, he might come face to face with someone coming up out of another trap door. He looked round, thinking that maybe someone was creeping up on him, but there was nobody. The sound of feet came louder. He put his ear to the naked ice and listened. Yes, they were walking about in the hallway. There were several of them directly under him, near the trap door. He looked again to the roof on his left, wait, wanting to run and hide, but was afraid. Were they coming up? He listened. But there were so many voices. He could not make out the words. He did not want to surprise them. Whatever happened, he wanted to go down looking into the faces of those that would kill him. Finally, under the terror song of the siren, the voices came so close that he could hear the words clearly. God, but I'm tired. I'm cold. I believe we're just wasting time. Say, Jerry, you go to the roof this time. Yeah, I'll go. That guy might be in New York by now. Yeah, but we better look. Say, did you see that brown gal in there? The one that didn't have much on? Yeah. Boy, she was a peach, wasn't she? Yeah, I wonder what on earth a guy wants to kill a white woman for when he's got such good-looking women of his own race. Boy, if she'd let me stay here, I'd give him this goddamn hunt. Come on, give me a lift. You better hold this ladder. It seems rickety. Okay. Hurry up. Here comes the captain. Bigger was set. Then he was not set. He clung to a chimney that stood a foot from the trap door. Ought he to stay flat or stand up? He stood up, pushing against the chimney, trying to merge with it. He held the gun and waited. Was the man coming up? He looked to the roof on his left. It was still empty. But if he ran to it, he might meet someone. He heard footsteps in the passage of the loft. Yes, the man was coming. He waited for the trap door to open. He held the gun tightly. He wondered if holding it too tightly, so tightly that it would go off before he wanted it to. His fingers were so cold that he could not tell how much pressure he was putting behind the trigger. Then, like a shooting star streaking across a black sky, the fearful thought came to him that maybe his fingers were frozen so stiff that he could not pull the trigger. Quickly, he felt his right hand with his left, but even that did not tell him anything. His right hand was so cold that all he felt was one cold piece of flesh touching another. He had to wait and see. He had to have faith. He had to trust himself. That was all. The trap door opened slightly at first, then wide. He watched it, his mouth staring through the blur of tears which the cold wind had whipped into his eyes. The door came all the way open, cutting off his view for a moment. Then it fell back softly upon the snow. He saw the bare head of a white man, the back of a head framed in the narrow opening stenciled against the yellow glare of the restless bars of light. Then the head turned slightly and Bigger saw the side of the white face. He watched the man, moving like a figure on the screen in close-up slow motion, come out of the hole and stand with his back to him, flashlight in hand. The idea took cold swiftly. Hit him! Hit him! Hit him in the head! Whether it would help or not, he did not know, and it did not matter. He had to hit this man before he turned that spot of yellow on him and then yelled for the others. In the split second that he saw the man's head, it seemed that an hour passed, an hour filled with pain and doubt and anguish and suspense, filled with the sharp throb of life that lived upon a needle point. 
He lifted his left hand, caught the gun in which he held his right, took it into his fingers of his left hand, turned it around, caused it again in his, caught it again in his right hand, and held it by the barrel. All one motion, swift, silent, done in one breath, with eyes staring unblinkingly. Hit him! He lifted it high by the barrel. Yes, hit him! His lips formed the words as he let it come down with a grunt, which was a blending of a curse, a prayer, and a groan. He felt the impact of the blow throughout the length of his arm, jarring his flesh slightly. His hand stopped midair at the point where the metal of the gun had met the bone of the skull, stopped, frozen, still, as though again about to lift and descend. In the instant, almost, of the blow being struck, the white man emitted something like a soft cough. His flashlight fell into the snow, a fast flick of vanishing light. The man fell away from Bigger on his face, full length in the cushion of snow, like a man falling soundlessly in a deep dream. Bigger was aware of the clicking sound of metal against the bone of the skull. It stayed on in his ears, faint but distinct, like a sharp bright point lingering on in front of the eyes when a light has gone out suddenly and darkness is everywhere, so the click of the gun handle against the man's head stayed on in his ears. Had he not moved from his tracks, his right hand was still extended, upward in midair. He lowered it, looking at the man, the sound of the metal against the bone fading in his ears like a dying whisper. The sound of the siren had stopped, and at some time which he did not remember, then it started again, and the interval in which he had not heard it seemed to hold for him some preciously hidden danger, as though for a dreadful moment he had gone to sleep at his post with an enemy near. He looked through the whirling spokes of light and saw a trapdoor open upon the roof to his left. He stood rigid, holding the gun, watching, waiting. Only the man did not see him when he came. A head came into view. A white man climbed out of the trapdoor and stood in the snow. He flinched. Someone was crawling in the loft below him. Who could... Would he be trapped? A voice, a little afraid, called from the open hole through which the man whom he had struck had climbed. Jerry? The voice sounded clearly in spite of the siren and the clang of the fire wagons. Jerry! The voice was a little louder now. It was the man's partner. Bigger looked back to the roof to his left. The man was still standing there, flashing a light around. If only he would leave. He had to get away from this trap door here. If that man came up to see about his partner and found him sprawled in the snow, he would yell before he got the chance to hit him. He squeezed against the chimney, looking at the man on the roof to his left, holding his breath. The man turned, walked toward the trap door, and climbed through. He waited to hear the door shut, and it did. Now that roof was clear. He breathed silent prayer. Jerry! With gun in hand, Bigger crept across the roof. He came to a small mound of brick where the up-jutting jut up ridge of the building's flat top joined that of the other. He paused and looked back. The hole was still empty. If he tried to climb over, would the man come out of the hole just in time to see him? He had to take the chance. He grabbed the ledge, hoisted himself upon it, and lay flat for a moment on the ice, then slid to the other side, rolling over. He felt snow in his face and eyes and chest and heaved. He crawled to another chimney and waited. It was so cold that he had a wild wish to merge the icy bricks of the chimney and have it all over. He heard the voice again, this time loud, incessant. Jerry! He looked out from behind the chimney. The hole was still empty. 
excuse me. <laughs> but the next time the voice came, he knew that the man was coming out, for he could feel the tremor of the voice as though it were next to him. Jerry! He saw the man's face come through. It was struck like a piece of white pasteboard above the top of the hole. And when the man's voice sounded again, Bigger knew that he had seen his partner in the snow. J Jerry, say! Bigger lifted his gun and waited. Jerry! The man came out of the hole, stood over his partner, then scrambled and again, screaming, Say! Say! Yes, the man would spread the word. Ought he to run? Suppose he went down to the trap door, another roof. Ah, oh, there would be pupils standing in the hallways, and they would be afraid, and they would scream at the sight of him, and he would be caught. They would be glad to give him up and put an end to this terror. It would be better to run farther over the roofs. He rose. Then, just as he was about to run, he saw a head bob up in the hole. Another man came through and stood over Jerry. He was tall, and he stooped over Jerry's form and seemed to be putting his hand upon his face. Then another thought came through. One of the men centered his flashlight on Jerry's body, and Bigger saw one bend and roll the body over. The spotlight lit Jerry's face. One of the men ran the sheer edge of the roof, looking, overlooking the street. His hand went to his mouth, and Bigger heard the sound of a whistle, sharp, thin. The roar in the street died, the sirens stopped, but the circling of columns of yellow continued to whirl. In the peace and quiet of the sudden calm, the man yelled, Surround the block! Bigger heard an answering shout. You got a line on him? I think he's round here. A wild yell went up. Yes, they felt that they were near him now. He heard a man's shrill whistling sound again. It got quiet, but not so quiet as before. There were shouts of wild joy floating up. Send up a stretcher and a detail of men. Okay. The man turned and went back to Jerry lying in the snow. Bigger heard snatches of talk. How do you suppose it happened? Looks like he was hit. Maybe he's about... Quick, take a look over the roof. One of them saw the men rise in a flash of light. The circling beams lit the roof to a daylight brightness and... He could see that the one man held a gun. He would have to cross to the other roofs before this man or the others came upon him. They were suspicious and would comb every inch of space on top of these houses. On all fours, he scrambled to the next ledge and then turned and looked back. The man was still standing, throwing the spot of yellow about all over the snow. Bigger grabbed the icy ledge, hoisted himself flat upon it, and slid over. He did not think now of how much strength was needed to climb and run. The fear of the capture made him forget even the cold, forget even that he had no strength left. From somewhere in him, out of the depths of flesh and blood and bone, he called up the energy to run and dodge with but one impulse. He had to elude these men. He was crawling to the other ledge over the snow on his hands and knees when he heard the man yell, There he is! The three words made him stop. He had been listening for them all night, and when they came to him, he seemed to feel the sky crashing soundlessly about him. What was the use of running? Would it not been better to stop, stand up, and lift his hands high above his head and surrender? Hell nah, he continued to crawl. Stop, you! A shot rang out, whining past his head. He rose and ran to the ledge, leapt over, ran to the next ledge, leaped over it. He darted among the chimneys so that no one could see him long enough to shoot. 
He looked ahead and saw something huge and round and white looming in the dark, a bulk rising up sheer from the snow of the roof and swelling in the night, glittering in the glare and searching knives of light. Soon he would not be able to go much farther, for he would reach that point where the roof ended and dropped to the street below. He wove among the chimneys, his feet slipping and sliding over snow, keeping in mind that white looming bulk which he had glimpsed ahead of him. Was it something that would help him? Could he get upon it or behind it and hold them off? He was listening and expecting more shots as he ran, but none came. He stopped at a ledge and looked back. He saw in the lurid glare of the slashing lances of light the man stumbling over the snow. Ought he to stop and shoot? Nah, more would be coming, and in a moment he would only waste time. He had to find some place to hide, some ambush from which he could fight. He ran to another ledge, past the white looming bulk which now towered directly above him, then stopped, blinking. Deep down below was a sea of white faces, and he saw himself falling, spinning straight down into the ocean of boiling hate. He gripped the icy ledge with his fingers, thinking that if he had been running away any faster, he would have gone right off the roof, hurtling four floors. Dizzily, he drew back. This was the end. There were no more roofs over which to run and dodge. He looked. The man was still coming. Bigger stood up. The siren was louder than before, and there were more shouts and screams. Yes, those in the street knew now that the police and vigilantes had trapped him upon the roofs. He remembered the quick glimpse he had of the white looming bulk. He looked up. Directly above him, with white snow, was a high water tank with a round flat top. There was a ladder made of iron whose slick rungs were coated with ice that gleamed like neon in the circling blades of yellow. He caught hold and climbed. He did not know where he was going. He only knew, he knew only that he had to hide. He reached the top of the tank and three shots sang past his head. He lay flat on his stomach in the snow. He was high above the rooftops and chimneys now and he had a wide view. A man was climbing over a nearby ledge and beyond him was a small knot of men, their faces lit to a distant whiteness by the swinging pencils of light. Men were coming up out of the trap door in front of him and were moving toward him, dodging behind chimneys. He raised the gun, leveled it, aimed, and shot. The men stopped, but no one fell. He had missed. He shot again. No one fell. The knot of men broke up and disappeared behind ledges and chimneys. The noise in the streets rose in a flood of strange joy. No doubt the sound of the pistol shots made them think that he was shot, captured, or dead. He saw a man running toward the water tank in the open. He shot again. The man ducked behind a chimney. He had missed. Perhaps his hands were too cold to shoot straight. Maybe he ought to wait till they were closer. He turned his head just in time to see a man climbing over the edge of the roof from the street inside. The man was mounting a ladder which had been hoisted up to the side of the building from the ground. He leveled the gun to shoot, but the man got over and left his line of vision, disappearing under the tank. Why could he not shoot straight and fast enough? He looked in front of him and saw two men running under the tank. There were three men beneath the tank now. They were surrounding him, but they could not come for him without exposing themselves. A small black object fell near his head in the snow, hissing, shooting forth a white vapor like a blowing plume which was carried away by him in the wind. Tear gas! 
With a movement of his hand, he knocked it off the tank. Another came and he knocked it off. Two more came and he shoved them off. The wind blew strong from the lake. It carried the gas away from his eyes and nose. He heard a man yell, Stop it, the wind's blowing it away. He's throwing them back. The bedlam in the street rose higher. The more men climbed through trap doors to the roof, he wanted to shout, but remembered that he only had three bullets left. He would shoot when they were closer, and he would save one bullet for himself. They would not take him alive. Come on down, boy. He did not move. He lay with his gun in his hand, waiting. Then, directly under his eyes, four white fingers caught hold of the icy edge of the water tank. He gritted his teeth and struck the white fingers with the butt of the gun. They vanished, and he heard a thud as a body landed on the snow-covered roof. He lay waiting for more attempts to climb up, but none came. It's no use fighting, boy. You're caught. Come on down. He knew that they were afraid, and yet he knew that it would be soon over, over one way or another. They would either capture or kill him. He was surprised that he was not afraid. Under it all, some part of his mind was beginning to stand aside. He was going behind his curtain, his wall, looking out with sullen stares of contempt. He was outside his, himself now, looking on. He lay under a winter sky lit with tall gleams of whirling light, hearing thirsty screams and hungry shouts, defiant, unafraid. Tell him to hurry with the hose. This guy's armed. What did that mean? His eyes roved, watching for a movie object to shoot at, but none appeared. He was not conscious of his body now. He could not feel himself at all. He only knew that he was lying here with a gun in his hand, surrounded by men who wanted to kill him. Then he heard a hammering noise nearby. He looked. Behind the edge of the chimney, he saw a trap door open. All right, boy, a hoarse voice called. We're going to give you your last chance. Come on down. He lay still. What was coming? He knew that they were not going to shoot, for they could not see him. Then what? And while wondering, he knew. A furious whisper of water, gleaming like silver in the bright light, streaked above his head with vicious force, passing him high in the air and hitting the roof beyond with a thudding drone. They had turned on the water hose. The fire department had done that. They were trying to drive him into the open. The stream of water was coming from behind the chimney where the trap door was open, but as yet the water had not touched him. Above him, the rushing stream jerked this way and that. They were trying to reach him with it. Then the water hit him in the side. It was like the blow of a pile driver. His breath left and he felt a dull pain in his side that spread, engulfing him. The water was trying to push him off the tank. He gripped the edges hard, feeling his strength ebbing. His chest heaved, and he knew from the pain that throbbed in him that he would not be able to take hold much longer with the water pounding at his body like this. He felt cold, freezing. His blood turned to ice, it seemed. He gasped, his mouth open. Then the gun loosened in his fingers. He tried to grip it again and found that he could not. The water left him. He lay, gasping, spent. Throw that gun down, boy, he gritted his teeth. The icy water clutched again at his body like a giant hand. The chill of it squeezed him like the circling coils of a monstrous boa constrictor. His arms ached. 
He was behind the curtain now, looking down at himself, freezing under the impact of the water and sub-zero winds. The stream of water veered from his body. Throw that gun down, boy! He began to shake all over. He let go of the gun completely. Well, this was all. Why didn't they come for him? He gripped the edges of the tank again, digging his fingers into the snow and ice. His strength left. He gave up. He turned over on his back and looked weakly up into the sky through the high, shifting lattices of light. This was all. They could shoot him now. Why didn't they shoot? Why didn't they come for him? Throw that gun down, boy! They wanted the gun. He did not have it. He was not afraid anymore. He did not have the strength enough to be. Throw that gun down, boy! Yes. Take the gun and shoot it at them. Shoot it empty. Slowly, he stretched out his hand and tried to pick up the gun, but his fingers were too stiff. Something laughed in him, cold and hard. He was laughing at himself. Why didn't they come for him? They were afraid. He rolled his eyes, looking longingly at the gun. Then, while he was looking at it, the stream of hissing silver struck it and whirled it off the tank out of sight. There it is! Come on down, boy, you're through! Don't go up there, you might have another gun! Come on down, boy! He was all outside of it now. He was too weak and cold to hold the edges of the tank any longer. He simply lay at top of the tank, his mouth and eyes open, listening to the stream of water whirr above him, and the water hit him again in the side. He felt his body sliding over the slick ice and snow. He wanted to hold on, but could not. His body tethered on the edge, his legs dangled in the air. Then he was falling. He landed on the roof, on his face, in the snow, dazed. He opened his eyes and saw a circle of white faces, but he was outside of them, behind his curtain, his wall, looking on. He heard men talking, and their voices came to him from far away. That's him, all right. Get him down into the street. The water did it. He seems half frozen. All right, get him down into the street. He felt his body being dragged across the snow of the roof. Then he was lifted and put feet first into a trap door. You got him? Yeah, let him drop him on. Okay. He dropped into rough hands inside the dark loft. They were dragging him by the feet. He closed his eyes and his head slid along over rough planking. They struggled him through the last trap door and he knew that he was inside a building, for warm air was on his face. They had him by the legs again and were dragging him down a hall over a smooth carpet. There was a short stop and then they stared down the stairs with him, started down the stairs with him, his head bumping along the steps. He folded his wet arms about his head to save himself, but soon the steps had pounded his elbows and arms so hard that all of his strength left. He relaxed, feeling his head bounding painfully down the steps. He shut his eyes and tried to lose consciousness, but he still felt it, drumming like a hammer in his brain. Then it stopped. He was near the street. He could hear shouts and screams coming to him like the roar of water. He was in the street now, being dragged over snow. 
His feet were up in the air, grasped by strong hands. Kill him! Lynch him! Black son of a bitch! They let him go to his feet. He was in the snow, lying flat on his back. Round, round him surged a sea of noise. He opened his eyes and a little, his opened his eyes a little and saw an array of faces, white and looming. Kill that black ape. Two men stretched his arms out, as though about to crucify him. They placed a foot on each of his wrists, making them sink down deep in the snow. His eyes closed slowly, and he was swallowed into darkness. The end.